Part two of a three-part series we began last week called Awe, A-W-E, Awe. I'm really excited about this series, enjoyed the things that we looked at last week. Last week we looked about how God has wired us for wonder. That's the way we're made. That's why we love to go out and enjoy the wonderful world. We enjoy seeking wonderful things. Today, we're going to be taking a look at the topic, a corrective lens. We're going to look at awe as a corrective lens. Our focus for today is that too many of us view God as too small. I think that this is something that affects even pastors, theologians, that we slip into the mode where we just kind of think of God in smaller ways than we ought to. I want to describe it this way. I have a bunch of visuals up here. My little tabletop looks almost like my office desk. It's a cluttered mess, but uh, we're going to enjoy some of the things that will be as visuals for us. Here is a, a very dirty blue golf ball that's going to represent me. And uh, then this uh, somewhat dirty tennis ball is going to represent my world. And so here's how it works for me. When I am not in awe of God, I will be in awe of something. When I'm not focused on the wonderful thing that God gives me, I will focus on wonderful things. And I will want those wonderful things in my life. And so my life will begin to orbit around me, and that's the way I want it. My life, my work, my money, my relationships, uh, my pleasures, my joys, the things that I aim for and think is wonderful and start to live for, I will have it orbit around my world. And what is really taking place is although that might be the thing that I'm living for, when you think about it, because it is my life and it's, it's orbiting around my world, I'm really living for me. It's how this, my money, my life, my relationships, my world is all about me. And what happens is I slip into that mode. It's not intentional. I start to slip into the center of my world and slip into the center of the universe, my universe, and I begin to view myself as larger, and I begin to, not intentionally, view God as smaller. So as I'm orbiting my world around me and everything about me, and I want to take charge of my world and organize my world and make it work the way I want it to work, as it orbits around me, I kind of spin out of a larger orbit. I thought about holding a ball to represent the larger orbit, God being the center, but I thought, you know what, we already have a a globe in the sky called the sun that serves rather well as an illustration of orbiting around something, that that is what we're to orbit around. And let's go ahead and spell S-O-N, the son of God, as the center of our world, that I want to live in a world And that's my worldview, where my life and my world may be orbiting around me, but I'm orbiting around God. But when I become the center of my universe, I slip away. I I spin out of control. I actually begin to think, I actually begin to believe that I'm in control. 
which is really rather silly. How many things am I really in control of? I think that God has a sense of humor, because even as I was preparing for this message this morning, I'm, I'm dressed like this, I'm already thinking things through, I'm, I'm drinking my coffee, I, I'm getting ready to put my microphone on, I'm in front of the mirror, and there's coffee stain from here to here. It's like, when did that happen? I'm really good at being the center of my universe. I mean, if I can't even handle coffee, so, so what I do is like, oh, man. I get the paper towels, and I get it all wet, and I get my shirt all wet, and then I'm thinking, this will never dry in time for first service. So I'm standing in my office, and I've whipped off my shirt, and I'm thinking, oh, i got to help it to dry. So here I am in my office in my T-shirt going, whoo, whoo, I'm in charge of my world. I've got this. We can make this work. And at the same time, I had the forethought to think, this thing's going to get all wrinkled. So I'm holding the sleeves and the sleeves and thinking that if I hold it just right, then spin it, I can dry this thing out without ruining my shirt. And I'm not. I'm not the center of the universe. And no matter how large my life looms, and thinking that this is for me, and this is what I want, and this is how I want to live, and I've got it all under control. The reality is I don't. And the gravity of sin in my life has the capacity to spin me out of control. I don't even have self-control when I'm at the center. It does not work. My view of God is too small. So as I focus on me, I get larger in my view. As I focus on me, he gets distant, farther, and smaller. And we all tend toward this tendency. Now, one way to put it is, it's not about me. And it's not about now. And every one of us will slip into the mode of thinking where it is about me, and it is about right now. But with a larger view and a corrective lens where I'm looking through the lens of awe, and I sense that God is, he is real, my big view of me, oh, you know? And my big view of him just, Oh, is larger. That's where we need to go today. So if you like to take notes, um, there's an outline in your bulletin if you grabbed one, and you can jot down the first set of blanks and point number one. Our main temptation is to usurp God's position. That's been the pattern from the very, very beginning when God placed the first pair of humans in a garden there was no evil uh, yet, um, and everything was good. And then a, a being begins to tempt Adam and Eve, wanting Adam and Eve to serve him instead of he serve them. And the temptation, I know you're thinking, I got this, I know this thing, you know, there was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and they, they were tempted to eat that. But you need to understand it in these terms. The tempter said, if you eat this, you will be like God. 
And every one of our sins, every one of our, our tendencies to go after something and ignore God and make it all about me and all about now is always framed in that sense where we want to run our own lives. We want it to be about us. We want to ignore that there is a God. We want to be in charge. We want to be our own boss. We want to have our own world. This is my world. This is my universe. I want to be in charge. And this is what will make me happy. And it's, so it's self-centered. Usurping a God-centered world view. Now, with that being the case, I want to take a look through two lenses today, maybe more, but one lens in one verse of Scripture, Paul puts it together rather well. Um, so before we do that, here's the next couple of blanks on your outline, point number two. Use awe as a corrective lens. Use awe as a corrective lens. Literally, God has given us... Um, Lenses through which we can get glimpses of him. They're revelation lenses. And we talked last week about the general revelation, that we actually have pointers in the sky that say, hello, somebody made me. This is big. We didn't just happen out here. And those pointers in the sky, the bodies in heaven are crying out to us and pointing to a grander, bigger, creative being. And we talked about general revelation. We're going to look at specific revelation um, today also. And I'm going to just start with one line to help us get a specific revealed look at God. And it's from Paul. It's in Romans. And it reads this way. For from him... The context would, of course, tell us that the hymn we're talking about is God. For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Now, what I want us to do is to recognize that Paul is just gushing here, and he's finishing out a kind of a, a benediction uh, set of phrases, and this concludes that benedict that saying good things about God, uh, and he just gushes. And he's saying a correction to a lot of common misunderstanding. I slip into this misunderstanding. I think you might slip into this misunderstanding. And it's very common among believers. And it's even common among unbelievers. Believers have a two-category system, a way of evaluating everything in their lives. They say, you know what? My work world, my relationships, my pleasures, my children, my family, my marriage, all of that is my real life, okay? So that's categorized as real life. It's where I spend my energy, spend my time, it's where I dwell. That's my real life. And then a lot of us can slip into, you know, I really need to spend more time in the Bible. I really need to go to church. I really need to kind of think about God more. I really need to pray more often. I really need to include God in my life. And that's my spiritual life. And we tend to categorize our lives into these two categories. Our real life is where we live. Our spiritual life is what we feel like we need more of to make our real life better. Okay? Paul blows this out of the water. He says, there isn't two categories, folks. Hello, 
There's only one category. For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. All of this real life stuff is spiritual life. He's the center. If we look at this as real life, then we're the center. We think, you know what? It would be better if I added a little bit of God. And Paul is saying, that's the wrong way of looking at it. He's the center. It's all from him. And it's all to him. And, and through him is how you live it. And he's just setting us straight on how we view our lives. Every one of us has a worldview. I don't know where we get the worldview, where you got your worldview. I want my worldview. Here's my simple definition of my worldview. I want my worldview to match Jesus' worldview because I happen to believe Jesus had a correct worldview. And the reason I believe Jesus had a correct worldview is I've come to believe that he really did rise from the dead after predicting that he would. So I'm going to try to set my worldview to match the guy who says, I can rise from the dead, and he does. He's right. So I want to see things the way he sees things in my worldview. All of us have a worldview. And how we view our world will affect how we categorize life and why we do the things that we do and how we orbit the things around our world and why we do the choices that we make. So that is a lens that helps us have a grander view of God that helps put perspective on my world. We're going to jump into a bigger section of scripture that's also a really great lens for all. It's Isaiah 40, the entire chapter. I don't have time to do all of the verses. We're going to be skimming, skimming, skimming on some highlights in this chapter. So if you didn't bring your Bible today, grab the chair Bible in front of you. If you do not own a Bible that's easy, modern English reading, and you'd like to have one, uh, go ahead and take the Bible with you. Put your name in it. Make that your Bible. I'm really going to challenge you to take a look further into Isaiah 40 after we're done. So page 500 in the chair Bible. Everybody turn to Isaiah. We're going to begin in Isaiah 40. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. That's how this chapter begins. But I need to set you some background. As you turn the page from Isaiah 39 to Isaiah 40, something very strange takes place. Isaiah is an 8th century B.C. writer. But as we turn the page from 8th century B.C., in, in Isaiah 39, Isaiah has predicted that Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, that's the last holdout, is going to crumble. That Babylon is going to invade. They're going to be hauled away. They're going to go into exile. Judgment is falling. The northern kingdom has already fallen. The northern kingdom of Israel has already succumbed. Uh, there was already compromise and a lot of compromise, and they weren't turning and obeying the prophets. And now Judah is compromised and going to fall. That's predicted. We turn the page, and something odd takes place. We jump ahead in the story, even though Isaiah's writing in the 8th century, we jump ahead to the 6th century. How is that possible? Well, I believe it's possible a lot like the way when the Apostle John writes Revelation, 
He has the comforting literature of Revelation, comforting the people that are going through hard times in John's day, jumping forward in time and giving comfort to the people. Isaiah does the same thing. So over the centuries, people are becoming very convinced that these prophets are onto something because every detail they talk about ahead of time is actually fulfilled. And so now when the prophet is bringing comfort from a future view, that future view actually is comforting. I need to describe this comfort because the words in chapter 39 are not comfortable. You're going to be judged. In chapter 39, you're going to be judged. Babylon's going to come in. You're going to be hauled off. You're not going to have a nation. You're not going to have your temple. You're not, you're just, it's bad. And now, as you jump forward in the 6th century, excuse me, pinch off, People are in that time thinking, our God doesn't care. Our God's too small. I don't know, I am sure that our gods are as strong as the Babylonian gods. Seems like the Babylonian gods in the Babylonian kingdom have a greater power than we do. And as they're thinking this, they're being corrected by an awe-inspired, revealed description of God. Here's where this is really important. This happens to me, this happens to you. When my circumstances go dark, I tend to adapt my worldview of God to interpret my God through my circumstances. God doesn't listen to me. God hasn't heard. God doesn't care. And Isaiah says, don't do that. Isaiah 40 is saying, no, 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 no. Interpret your circumstances through your worldview of God. He is unchanging. He is large. And as you read through Isaiah 40, you're going to see that people come and go. Humanity is short-lived, but God is forever, and his word is sure. And over the centuries, the people were growing in confidence in this lens called the word of God. Because the kingdoms would come and go, the kings would come and go, the people would come and go, but exactly what the prophets were saying were taking place. And so this prophecy is an example of that. How comforting is it to set your mind on the future while you're hurting right now? That depends on your view of God. Let's skip to verse 9. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up. Do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. And then he's going to describe with description after description after description how powerful, how grand, how awesome God is, and I'm going to just pick a couple of them to highlight. Comfort comes when our satisfaction is in the awe of God. Verse 10. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power, and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him, and his recompense accompanies him. 
He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Let's just slow that down a little bit. Talking about all the seas, all the waters of the earth. Who else but God can measure the water of the seas and can measure the water of the seas in the hollow of his hand? Now, this is poetic. This is metaphor but it's describing the bigness of the God who created it all. And he's able to measure it in the hollow of his hands. And then the next one, I really like this one. Or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens. So let me just describe to you a hand breadth. An outstretched hand is from thumb point to pinky point in an outstretched hand is a built-in ruler for the ancient people. That's a hand breadth, okay? And so this hand breadth is how Isaiah is saying, our God who created it all is so awesome. Who can measure the heavens except him? And he measures with a hand breadth. Now just, so far you don't seem impressed, so I'm gonna... Um, I'm going to just do a little illustration here. I have a regular eight and a half by 11 sheet of paper. It's just, I think it's 20 pound, yeah, 20 pound paper, okay? Here's a 20 pound piece of paper. If the distance of the earth to the sun, which is 92.96 million miles, oh yeah, I got that computed, all right. If the distance from the earth to the sun is 92.96 million miles, and if that's by illustrative to get a hold of, if I'm turn the paper this way, if that is one thickness of one sheet of paper, so here's the sun, here's the earth, if it's just one thickness of paper, then, here we go with the next comparison, the distance of the earth to the nearest star is a 100 feet stack of papers. Okay? Just to get you perspective. So... Here's a ream of paper, two inches, 500 pages, okay? Take the 500 pages, stack, 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 stack. Um, the front of the building, just to get a visualization, is about 25 feet. So think 100 feet up in the air, stacked paper. And now the very, very bottom one, the very first piece under it being the earth and pinched between the first piece and the second piece of paper is the sun on top. Okay? Only it's squished. Then you go <laughs> 100 feet up. Now you've got the distance to the very next star. So 300,000 times the distance between Earth and Sun to the next star. Okay, we just need to get a little bit of the grandeur here. So then... The diameter of the galaxy is a stack of papers 310 miles high. That's just the diameter of the galaxy. And the galaxy is just a speck of dust. Just a speck of dust in the universe. And God goes, looks good. He's the one who created it. That's what Isaiah is saying. Now, I don't know if you believe it. I do. That God is bigger than the universe. 
course, if you don't believe in God, you have other puzzles and things to figure. Where did the universe come from? Oh, there was nothing. And then, bang, everything. That it, how? Why? What caused the bang? Okay? I believe, in the beginning, was God. And he said, let there be light. Bang! And there was. <laughs> All right. So it gives you a sense of bigness. And to step into the lens of revelation and trust it gives you a sense of awe. Now, I'm not sure whether you want to go there or not, but I think it's life transformative if you do. Now, we're going to skip to verse 27. Oh, before we move on, so we got this grand picture of God. He's so, he's the creator. He's so huge. Here's what we do. God, here's my world. Can you just assist me? We're, he's, the, he's our assistant. We're the center of the universe, and he's our assistant to assist our world. And we tend to diminish God to assisting us in the center of our universe. And really, he's saying, no, 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 seek first his kingdom, and all this will be added as well. Okay, so that's a different way of looking at things. Let's skip forward to verse 27. Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord. My cause is disregarded by my God. Isaiah anticipates that these complaints are going to come during their difficulty. This is going to happen. They're going to say this. Of course, that's not a hard one to predict. I say this kind of stuff too. God, how come you're not responding? How come nothing's happening here? For me, waiting nine years and nine months to get from our school auditorium into this facility, that was, God, why, why can't you do this thing? And he knew. He knew what he had planned. It was way bigger than my plans. Point number three, would you write this down? Complaint is the native language of allessness. Complaint is the native language of allessness. It's the native speech of the heart that does not believe in God. If praise is celebrating God's glory, isn't then complaint anti-praise? Now this stings, it hurts, and I'm not trying to sting you, it hurts me, because I still complain. In my, when I slip into the dark way of thinking, it's like, oh, the, the stuff I'm dealing with, is got the, there's too much, it's too much pressure, I can't handle it. And God is going, hello? That's really small. <laughs> I can handle it. Hand it over. And, and, and instead I'm going, I gotta do this, I gotta do this, it's too much, I gotta do this and this and this. I'm still orbiting it all around my world because I'm still at the center and I'm just kind of not ha handling it well. And, 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 and I begin to have and I shouldn't, but I begin to act like there's a God absentness, like he doesn't know what's going on, like he's not really in charge, like he's not really in control, it's like I'm in control, and I'm stressing and anxious and worried, it's like, why do I do that? But I do, 
And complaint and grumbling is anti-praise. What's the solution? The solution is an active step of taking up the lens and viewing the glory of God. If I step into the glory of God and worship, and literally this really helps me. I'm trying to do this more now. So I'm getting ready in the morning. I have my tunes blasting. And sometimes I pick this worship set that I know is going to help my heart open up to the fact that God is bigger than you. He is the center. And I begin to go, oh, it's okay. It's not a God-absent world. And my stresses can be lifted. Point number four. Those who hope in the Lord renew their strength. Those who hope in the Lord renew their strength. So all of this, you know, negative complaint stuff, Isaiah's not going to stop there. He's going to stop on a positive note, give us the solution. And so in verse 30, we read this. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. I want to talk about this a little bit more detail. The word hope there, in some translations, are trans, it's translated wait. Those who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. There's implied an active mode. It's not passive. Oh, I hope so. That's passive. Oh, I hope so. That's passive. Active is a, I step into hoping. I'm stepping actively into waiting on the Lord instead of taking my world and I'm taking charge. I've got this massive problem. If I can just break it into pieces and start working on the little parts, I'm going to solve this thing. I'm going to have it orbit around me and make sure it all comes together because I'm a pretty good master of the universe. No, I'm not. Right? But if I wait on the Lord, if I hope in him, I literally take up a view to his glory and say, God, I'm waiting on you. I'm not going to take charge and try to make this work. Would, would you show your glory? I want to finish. Let me read the text first. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. So using poetic imagery to describe a supernatural lift where it's not all based on you. Where your work world, your family world, your marriage world, your relationship, you're getting the lift where it's like, thanks, God. Thanks. You're awesome. I'm waiting upon you. I'm trusting you. I'm actively stepping towards you. I'm actively looking at you. Almost 50 years ago, not quite, on my birthday, my dad gave me this. I keep it in my office now. I keep it on a ledge to remind me that even scientists look through a lens to see what they cannot see with their naked eye. Over and over again, I used this and looked at things that I could not see with my eye. And that's into the small world. There's other lenses, telescopes, to look into the far world, to see things that we cannot see with our naked eye. Scientists depend on these instruments to learn about a world that's real, a world that's there, details that we cannot know without lenses. God has revealed himself in history, in events, that is a revelation of himself. God has revealed himself in the event of creation and 
The psalmist talk about, talked about that last week as we look at the stars. That's general revelation that points us to a glory beyond itself. As you look around, design points to what's beyond itself. I'm a not professional theologian, but I'm a theologian. I'm calling you to be a theologian. A person who studies God. And the way you study God is to take a look at a lens he gave us. There's general revelation, look around, and there's special revelation. And I want to challenge you to look into the one lens that we're looking at today, Isaiah 40, and look at it over and over and over again. You may not believe it, but I want you to look through that lens and allow the descriptions of the prophet's view to sink into your heart. Perhaps you'll have an expansive view and you'll step into the awe, and I believe stepping into more awe helps your real life. Would you pray with me? Lord God, we thank you for giving us lenses, for giving us revelation, for giving us history, events, both secular and sacred writers ponder and interpret. We thank you that we have confidence over the centuries through these prophetic lenses to ponder things that we could not see otherwise, to step into an awe-filled life. Help us to recognize that it's not all about me and it's not all about now. That you're there. That it's from you. It's for you. We can actually learn to live through you and give glory to you. Help us to grow in awe. It's in Jesus' name we pray.